and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is the wonderful Kim Bellis, aka Sober is the New Call. Kim's journey began back in 2013 when she decided to make the commitment to stop drinking in order to support her son Matthew who had been diagnosed with epilepsy. Sober is a new call was created as soon as she realised the social pressures surrounding not only herself but her son too. Connection is the key to hope, health and happiness. And she quickly realised by sending messages of hope and inspiration every day has the potential of brightening somebody's world. Kim has just celebrated 11 wonderful years of sobriety, one absolute superstar. I hope you enjoy the show and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. So hello Kim, welcome to my podcast one for the road. It's such a joy to have you on. I've been meaning to get you on for such a long time. How are you? I'm very, very honoured to be here and thank you, thank you because I think the world of you, Dave. Oh, bless you, Kim. And you are the queen of sobriety. You glow up the squares in Instagram and everyone loves you so much. Whenever I mention you, they go, oh, we love Kim. She's so amazing. So thank you for everything you do. Okay, Kim. Now, um, people love you. They know you, but um, not everyone knows your story. And as you know, always I'm nosy bugger. I like to find out right from the beginning. So would you mind sharing your story for what it was like growing up as a, a young girl and where you lived and how it was for you back then? Okay, perfect. So basically, I live in Montreal, Canada, and um, I'm going to be 63 years old in January. So growing up, um, alcohol was in our family everywhere, anytime, the parties, the events. Um, you know, there was wine at lunch, there was wine at dinner. Um, my father um, was Slovak. He came to Canada. But as a lot of um, Europeans do, there is a huge culture around drinking. And not just wine. There was a lot, I think in those days too, and I think now it's coming back full circle, but the gin, the vodkas, the whiskey, the brandies after dinner, it was, this is what it was. That was the evening and the entertaining that went around it um, was all about alcohol. My father had a business that he created and he worked very hard, but it was liquid lunches and liquid dinners that, you know, consumed. And in those days, businessmen, that's what they did. They took people out for lunch. And a lot of times stayed right till dinner time, right? 
So sometimes by the time my dad would get home, it was very sad. There were moments, especially with um, hard alcohol, he would become um, nasty. You know, he would say things that were not very nice to us. And it, there was a tension in the house. I remember actually when I was little, like probably 12 or 13, those footsteps, when, you know, when somebody would come home at night, you would hear those footsteps. And I could still kind of hear them in my mind wondering, oh, my God, or thinking, is he going to be okay to drive home? Because as I was getting older, even though in his generation, everybody did drink and drive, and I did too. I drank many, many times and drove. But in their generation, it, but our generation, it was starting to change a little bit. Like you knew, okay, who was almost the least intoxicated to drive. At least that was part of the equation where in his world, it was, they all got into their cars and drove. And so for me, I think growing up and my father was the person I loved absolutely the most in the world. We're born two days apart. We were the best of friends. Um, if I would rob a bank, he would find a reason why, who made me rob the bank. That's how, you know, we worked as a team. It was like, I, we never really wanted to see what each other did, I guess, in a bad light. I, and, I suppose it was hard then um, if you were so close to him that when he came home drunk that he behaved like that because we all know that we totally changed when we've had too much, right? Yes, and, you know, I think... Also, as sad as that was, I was relieved he got home safe, number right. one. Number two, I knew that wasn't who he was, even though it was hurtful. And it was, you know, we I guess it was just like a sigh of relief. Okay, he's home safe. Now we can all kind of go to sleep and not worry so much. And then the next day to see him so sad and so... Um, it was like withdrawn. Like you could see he felt so bad about everything he had said or done because he was the most gentle human being. He was the most generous person, but he hated confrontation. And, you know, he grew up with a very strict upbringing and his father was not apparently a very, I never met my, my grandfather, but apparently he was not a very nice man. So there were lots of things that he lived with that nobody talked about in those days, depression or trauma or anxiety or so I don't know everything he went through. And I guess, but somehow I guess I always forgave him because I loved him so, so much. And his qualities were so much bigger than the drink, you know, for me. Um, and I guess I found excuses like we do, right? You find the excuses you want to find. And I guess I didn't really like confrontation or I would make like a snide comment and go into his office and say, um, you know, I'm, I'm not helping you put another nail in this coffin. You know, you've got to stop drinking. You have to, you know, and we'd get into it, banter back and forth. And then it was like I was shoot away, like to go back to my little square office there, you know, and. And, but, you know, and then there were moments where he would try to stop drinking, I remember, and it was so wonderful. Like it was like a relief, you know, and then it would start again. So I guess there was always living with that, that anxiety of, 
is something bad going to happen today? And then when he decided, okay, no more hard liquor, just wine, that was much better than before. But it was still not good. You know what I mean? And I'd see my mother sad. And, you know, the whole dynamic in a house when someone's drinking, it's funny because now I can look back at it and, 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 and think, wow, I see it. But there I couldn't see it. it was How like, old were you then? I, I, you know, we grew up all of our lives with him drinking. But I guess when I started to see it was like 14, 15 when I started to drink. Right. But then it was kind of like, well, I'm drinking. So, you know, it was it was just like and in Canada, people drink at 18. So normally you start at 14, 15, you start going into the park, you you know, you go to somebody's house, you steal the parents wine, you know, or I remember my parents had a huge liquor cabinet at a country house and then we'd fill the wa- the bottles with water. Like, you know, so there'd be half gin and half water. So they wouldn't know we had had drank half of it, you know. And and then I guess I just kind of made it normal as part of. And for me, I guess. Watching him somehow, some way, I kind of turned into him, I guess, Mm. because my mother hated when I drank. She despised it. I don't know. How many times she, I could see her look at me from her eyes with, so naturally my mother and I didn't get along very well in those days, right? Because it was, I had my father thinking I couldn't do anything wrong. And then my mother calling me out on drinking too much or getting home too late or doing things that, you know, were not acceptable. She was and, probably um, quite protective over you, right? Because of, uh, your dad, you know, she didn't yeah. want you to turn into him. No. And, and she just, it was like, you know, we, we were like oil and water because can you imagine somebody that always excuses? And I guess I excused everything my dad did. So he excused everything I did. And then I had her trying to make me be what I should be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and accept that, you know, I guess, but I think when it comes down to it, I never had any confidence in myself. And was that, for whatever reason, why did I feel like that? And alcohol from a young age made me feel like I could talk more, I could go out more, I could dance better. You know, if I did an event for like a planning event for a party, I always remember, I guess, because I was a perfectionist, thinking, oh, I'm going to have two martinis before I leave the house. And then I'd get there and then, I, like, if, you know, to make sure everything was perfect. And to be able to talk to people, I remember feeling so kind of scared almost, like to say, hi, I'm Kim, enjoy your evening. And it was nothing that, looking back now, I think, why was I so afraid? But it must be because I was so insecure yeah. to feel that the alcohol was going to give me the confidence that I needed. It's really fascinating, isn't it? That so many people I talk to and you as well, probably it's that age of 13, 14. And I think there's a transition going from a child into an adult period that we almost don't know who we are. 
So yeah. we, we take a drug to then later on become someone we don't know we are. It's, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely mad. And but so many people do at that age. And it's like what you say is exactly the same for me and thousands of others where we lack confidence, we're insecure, we, we're not sure of our identity. So as soon as we take a drug, it takes all that away and we feel like, do you know what, I am actually right, I feel okay, I'm making people laugh, they like me, yeah. all yeah. that business. So then you feel accepted, so you want to keep doing it. That's right. And I think that was when you said they like me, mm. right? That was a big thing. I wanted people to like me. Mm. So I mean, I wanted through our be... adult life like that as well, people pleasing, don't we? For our whole yes. career of drinking, I want people to like me. I'm sure it's because we don't know who we are and we don't know if we even like ourselves most of the time. Yeah, and I think that, you know, you want to be the life of the party so everybody comes to sit with you. Yeah. You know, and I guess that that was part of, you know, I think, okay, I need to be even a little bit buzzed before I get there to have the confidence kind of to even walk in and like, hi, 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 and be, you know, all sparkly and, and, and talkative and, you know, cheeky. Yeah. Yeah. I I relate to that. So at that point in your teens, how much were you drinking back then? Well, I think by the time I was 16 and I had a car, I was drinking, you know, definitely when we would, I mean, we didn't drink every night per se, because we didn't go out every night. But when we did drink, it was full on, you know, it was, there was like, so it's Friday night or Thursday night. So you start to get ready at at home, like nine o'clock, nine 30, a bottle of wine opens or, or whatever. And then you go out at 11 p.m. because Jesus. that was the whole cycle, right? You stay out till four o'clock in the morning. You don't go there at 10. Nobody's there. So well, I think you, it's different in Canada because we used to go out at five o'clock in the afternoon after work. But Oh, yes, sometimes. But mostly when I was 16, I was still in school, right? So mm-hmm. it wasn't a five o'clock. When I was 21... Yeah. And I was back from college. Yes, then at five o'clock, people would start at five. Yeah. So but you had 16, a car, a car at sixteen. Was you going out and drinking and driving? And I remember, and I tell the story that I used to, you know, there's those little white lines in the road. I'd close one eye to make sure that the lines stayed straight. Oh my god! And when I, I mean, like uh, when that I whole say conversation that, is is you know, when you look at sixteen year old now. In behind the wheel, it's scary, but under the influence of booze as well is horrendous, isn't it? And I've done it, and- Kim. I'm not judging you. I, you know, I passed my test when I was 17 and I had a three litre Granada. And I remember get, going down the pub and not even thinking about walking home back then. It was a different era. That doesn't make it right, but it was a totally different era and everyone did it. And, and, and I remember. Like I say it today, and that's a long, that's 50 years ago, basically, or 45 years ago. And it still hurts my heart to say that I closed my eye to keep the lines. You know, I I still can kind of see that. And I remember thinking, you know, and then when we would go to the country, my, my, our country house was probably 35 minutes away from the bar. 
that's far to be driving when you're drinking. That's very, very far. Or even if I got in cars with my friends, we all w- were like, okay, who's the best to drive? Like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was kind of like, okay, meeny, 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 miny, mo, you know? Yeah, I know. And we were know? lucky we didn't hurt anybody. No, you know? I know, or killed anyone. That That's no. the scary thing. But um, I remember that as well. And But you don't seem to know any different then do you it's like a real period of naivety and like it's almost like everyone did it so you do it i mean i remember i got um my car searched uh at a place called rose hill outside the kentucky fried chicken after a friday (laughs) night on the booze and i had a load of carpet tools in the boot and they they Pulled me over. Well, I'd already parked up, but they like searched the car, found all the tools and that. And I was drunk and they didn't even breathalyze me. So, and to this day, I have no idea how I got away with that because I was 17, 18, had a skin fall and was in charge of my car. And, to, but what horrifies me is that I was still in my work clothes. I've been in the pub for my, and I was driving. And it, I'm sure there's people nodding their head now but there's so many people of us back in that era that did that and and it's it's bloody scary because we're not focused on anything are we and And, you know i i think too i surrounded myself with people that did the same thing so i guess it made it normal yeah that's what i mean like everyone did it like all the older people which are probably in their 30s then and i looked at them as old yeah. We're all doing the same, and we they set the example, didn't they? I and mean, it's like you wouldn't even think about leaving the keys behind and getting a cab or walking. You just got in the no. But um, so what? You know, moving in through your teens, um, what happened after that? Well, then I I went away. I uh, then at one point, I guess my parents saw the writing on the wall, and I was sent to a school called Queen of Angels, which is basically a school run by nuns, a private girls' school. And I was sent, I, it was 15 minutes from where I lived, but I had to sleep there. Like I was a boarder. I would sleep there from Sunday to Friday night. And basically they would pick me up on the Friday, bring me to the country because they, I guess, and, you know, my sister went to the same school. She's two years younger than me, but she didn't have to sleep there. So I guess I was a bit of a troublemaker to say the least. So I was there, but that part of my life, I guess on the weekends, then I just drank more, you know, we would go out, somebody would pick me up at my parents' house and then I'd get sloshed. So I was safe, I guess, from Sunday to Friday and they didn't have to deal with me because that was, and I guess they were, my mother's idea maybe too, is she'll turn into a lady and she won't talk so loud and she won't be so. (laughs) <laughs> whatever <laughs> and uh needless to say but those were good days and then once i left there i went away to school to florida where um i knew they i would be no control i wouldn't have anybody watching me over my my shoulder like i could go out and i'd say oh my phone was off or i didn't answer and, and seven, when i was 17 the cell phone thing was not 
really huge, right? So no, it was like landline, yeah. landline. So you could say, oh, somebody was talking on the phone. You were out. Like, it's not like today. So there I became real party. You know, I mean, I met people from all over the United States. And I remember going to the first party there. There was a huge table and everybody saying, um, I said, oh, my God, is that where the food is? Right. Because to my mind, there was a huge table and there were people all around and it was a table full of drugs. And because in the United in Canada, we were behind in that way or my group of circle did not do drugs. So I was not accustomed to seeing a table of drugs and that scared me. But it was like, okay, well, I drink, they do drugs. You know, there was that line was. Mm. And so I kind of distanced myself from them, which is a bit hypocritical to to think I was better than them because I was only drinking. Right. I mean, I was the same. No- I, I never got into I might have had a couple of spliffs uh, and I took an XD tablet once and I was ill for two weeks after that. Um, and I, I was drink. I knew where I was with booze. Do you know what I mean? And we've tried, I didn't know where I was. So I, I hear you on that one. So that time of my life was, you know, I, I stayed out way too late. I did things. I remember at first I didn't have a car when I was first there. And then my father sent a car for me because it was just, there was a lot of racial tension in the United States in those days. And in Canada, we didn't have that black versus white thing. Um, we just didn't. If you were black, if you were white, if you were whatever, everybody said hello to one another. And I remember when I first got to this school, I was walking and then there was the first event and I was drinking and there was a bunch of black girls and, and I was smiling at them. And I kind of had that Farrah Fawcett hair in those days. And one of them said they were going to beat me up. Cause they thought I was laughing at them. I was not laughing at them. I was, but because I was drinking too much, I was too loud. I was too, and they thought I was being kind of like ignorant and bitchy and like kind of thinking I was all that. And it wasn't, I was just saying hi, but with the alcohol, I guess it came across as arrogant. Yeah. And the blonde hair and the, you know, like, and I, I then finally they understood coming from Canada, we did not have that that prejudice like they do in the United States. So in the end, it turned out OK, but it could have been a very um, I had some American girls from New York City that stepped in in between to 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 deescalate the situation because I had but I was kind of bombed. Right. So I had no idea of how bad it was getting either. Yeah. And that escalated and. Yeah. And, and I think because those two other girls made them realize that I was not being arrogant at all. I had been drinking too much. I was trying to be funny. I was trying to make friends. I, I was not coming from a place where they thought I, I, I think they thought I was mocking them when I wasn't at all. Yeah. But you know, when you drink, you don't, what you think you're doing or what you think you look like isn't necessarily so. You look a lot worse, right? You talk too loud, you you do stupid things, you say stupid things. The way you say things come out, not the way really that you mean, but they come out like that. Yeah, yeah. Depending so, on your mood at the time. I mean, like some of the conversations I've even thought to, I don't even know what I'm, who I am now. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
But so let's move on. You met your husband, got married. No, um, I had I had a uh, a lot of boyfriends. I got married late. I got married when I was thirty two, thirty three years old. So in between that, there was a lot of um, different nights, lots of lots of parties, lots of drinking. And I have to say, actually, when I turned twenty one, I remember thinking um, I had a party, and the next day I thought, okay, I had I had talked bad to somebody. I was quite nasty, and I had been drinking Grand Marnier. And I had said to myself, I will never drink Grand Marnier again after I turned 21. And then I don't know how come I didn't realize that hard liquor would not be good for me. Like even then there was a sign that that Grand Marnier just took me or tequila. I turned nasty. I turned nasty. Which is ironic, isn't it? When you saw what hard liquor did to your dad. I know. Now looking back, it's crystal clear, but not then. Yeah, I know. I, I was the same with gin. Gin used to make me so depressed. So, so I knocked like alcohol on the head with uh, spirits. You know, I didn't. I never used to drink spirits, which is ironic. That later on, that's all I drank. So, you 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 had the effect with tequila. That sent me mad in the past before as well. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, but even then I should have known like, wow, like this is yeah. not working. It's not, but you don't see it. And I guess nobody talked about it either in those days. Like I, I remember once saying to somebody, I never liked people coming to my house because I was afraid. What if my father had been drinking? And then as time went on, we had people that would say, oh, my father drinks. I don't want you to come over. Like it slowly started to, to shift where people could actually share with one another and it was like oh it's not just in my house you know so what happened after that then uh so my 20s were i guess a blur uh in the sense that i was trying to figure out who i was i was working um i for a cosmetic company so that was fine and then like i think like you with the five o'clock thing started happening where people would go out for happy hour in canada yeah, yeah. Uh, you know thursday friday or wednesday thursday friday because saturday nights were for young people so you didn't go out on saturday nights or you did different things or went somewhere else and um so that was kind of just but i would dance too late i would get up i remember being so tired and so hungover and having to go to work you know i remember those days of of almost being dizzy standing up yeah. right from from no no sleep so yeah so that was like crazy that um that was happening at the time when um you know i would i i guess i just kept going even though i felt so lousy and and you know it was craziness. It was just sheer craziness of that I, I, and I knew I didn't feel bad. And then I remember my dad would come in my room and say, if you go to rat holes, you find rats. Like, so it, it was almost like a joke in the sense mm. that even though he was angry that I had stayed out all night or that I didn't go to work like I was supposed to, um, Whatever the reasoning was that, you know, um, I gave or I said I was sick or whatever, I kind of got away with it for many, many, a long, long time. 
And, and I guess that was our dance, my father and I, you know, I would do something and it was kind of like, you're not, you're not that much better than me kind of thing. And then I was going to be married at 27 or 28 and things just didn't go right. And three weeks before the wedding, I canceled it. Um, yeah. So that was quite traumatic. Um, and then my partying went really full on because one, the shame of canceling a wedding and having to explain to people why it didn't work out. So that was kind of like, even though now looking back, it was the biggest blessing in my life not to have married that person. Uh, but at that time, I remember it was another like bang on my head. See, you're not good enough. See, you can't get married. Everybody's getting married around you. And so life just continued. It was kind of like just go out, find people to go out with, have fun. And on the outside looking in, everybody thought I was just the fun, happy girl. Mm. Like even to this day, I have to tell you, 10 years later, people still say to me, you never had a problem. But I did. But that's how normalized I think it still is. And it was even bigger then. It was not unless you for them, you to have a problem, you almost had to be living underneath a bridge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. With no shoes on and no yeah. coat, and that I was that a problem. I always say, and I, it's a real mantra of mine, it doesn't matter how much you drink, it's how it makes you feel. Because I know people that drink two glasses of wine a night, yet they're really anxious, it affects their mood, they can't sleep, right? So you don't have yeah. to be that textbook image of an alcoholic with a brown bag on a bench, you know? Um, but that's what everybody thinks. Or yeah. at least when I was growing up, that's if you were successful, if you had a business, if you were basically functioning, you were okay. Yeah. But, you know, that's the era as well. But I still yeah. hear it these days when people say um, they don't think they've got a problem. But that's half the time now is because we hide it a lot better, you know. So they only see the couple of glasses after work or but they don't see the bottle at home hidden in the cupboard. Do you know what I mean? So that's a lot of it. And actually, I remember once uh, when I had moved out and my mother was popping in, I remember I was having a glass of wine. It was probably, I don't know, five o'clock in the afternoon. And I was alone at home. And I remember seeing the car pull into my driveway and hiding it behind the curtain for her not to see that I had a glass of wine. Yeah. Like those are the kind of memories that are coming back that I think, wow, the fact that I had to hide that glass at five o'clock, obviously it's because I knew deep down inside it wasn't okay, right? Yeah. I, I, when I bought my house, which I spent 10 years, uh, I called it Hotel Belmonte. It was in a village called Belmont. And actually after I realized it was my prison, the woman I bought a house from knocked on the door two days after to check everything was all right. And I had a can of Stella in my hand at five o'clock. I didn't even think about it. It was just in my hand. And she came in and I literally walked to the cupboard and put the, the can in the cupboard. So that was the shame I had about her catching me with a can of Stella, you know. But my behavior was ridiculous because on the outside, I had the persona that I had everything together. I didn't have anything together. 
And it was almost that moment I thought, why am I putting this in the cupboard? She's seen me with it in my hand. But I was, I had to have this thing of hiding it all the time because I didn't want people to know how bad it had got. You know, I think that when I remember going back like 30 years ago, at least, I was doing fundraising for cancer events. And in those days, they were talking about the, the cause of cancer and alcohol, the, the link. And I was drinking in those days. And I remember thinking, this is such nonsense. This is, like anything that came out about alcohol where it was negative, And I was a smoker, too. I used to smoke cigarettes like a fiend. And the more I drank, the more I smoked. Yeah. So that doesn't make you feel too good either, to say the least. I think what you we know? were doing back to our bodies then, because I did as well, yeah. I'd smoke roll-ups. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't really smoke them without a drink. But once I drank, yeah. I'd chain smoke. Yes, one after the other. Yeah. yeah. So that, you know, like those, looking back, I think, wow, you know, and I have to say for anxiety and all the rest of it that went with it, it's amazing that I didn't hate myself more. Mm. But it just becomes the default coping mechanism to carry on through life, doesn't it? And we don't think about the consequences of it because the short-term fix is what we hook into, isn't it? It's like, and this is why it's so hard to get away from because we kind of don't think there's anything else to do sort that out in our lives. You know, when you've had a bad day or or the kids are playing up or, you're feeling miserable, that drink, that one drink is so alluring that you forget all the consequences that are going to happen after you just want that fix. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's amazing that it's taken this long for people to be able to talk about. Yeah. Well, we're open about a lot of other things. But I think in the last five years, it's really escalated where it's quite common for people to say they're not drinking anymore, you know? Um, and this is why people like yourself are so wonderful in the community because uh, you, you're so open about it and we can talk about that later. But I want to get to the point that um, where did you start to question your relationship with alcohol? I guess, you know what? I, I think there was, I, I think maybe, oh, I know one time for sure. This is a really hard thing to talk about, actually. I had just gotten married and I was, oof, I don't know, this is going to be, this memory just came. Um, and I was pregnant and um, I had a miscarriage. And I remember going to see the doctor and it was after I'd had the miscarriage and I remember there was something wrong with my blood levels and everything. And I walked in and she said, I had been drinking the night before, obviously I was, you know, sad. I was crying. I was whatever. And she had said something to the effect like that. uh, Had I had a drink that morning and I was horrified because I said, Oh my gosh. I haven't thought about this in a long time. I said, are you crazy? I did not drink this morning. But I guess I had drank so much the night before that I still smelt of alcohol in the doctor's office. And that, I think, was... But I, I, I think I kind of 
let that go only because it was there, but it wasn't because I blamed the miscarriage and all the events leading up to drinking that much. Like there was always like, and outside looking in, my life looked pretty good. You know, I, I came from a nice family. I, I didn't have too many struggles. I went on vacation. Like, you know, like the picture, the white picket fence that everybody talks about that's really non-existent. That's what people see, or that's what I guess I wanted them to see. Yeah. So I think after I lost my first baby, that was where, and that doctor said that to me. Yeah. That was, that was rough. I remember thinking after that, but I continued along. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing that. Um, are you okay? Yep. That I just, just, woo, that came from nowhere, but yeah, that's no. okay. That, that's what it's about, right? No shame. Yeah. Uh, and that happens, doesn't it? These memories get buried deep within us and then one sentence can bring them back up again and, um, I've had a few of them recently as well, but also I think possibly what happened there was, is the first time you might've got kind of called out on it. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, I'm not getting away with it as much as I thought. And that's when you start to feel shame, isn't it? And then you start to question it and you start to think, Right, okay, this is a whole different story now that I've been And she wasn't gentle. She was not gentle the way she said it. Mm-hmm. I can promise you that. She was very, very stern and very almost um like it was kind of like I deserved losing the baby. Yeah. That's how it made me feel. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. No, that's okay. You know what? That's that's what this is all about because if we are not honest and we don't share you know, I have one picture of my mother and I at my 50th birthday that I've still not been able to share publicly. I've shared it with people that are having a hard time because they look at me now and think, oh, my God, she didn't have any problems. She didn't suffer. She's not like me. And, you know, everything's pretty pinky perfect. And w- when they see that picture when I was 50 years old and the sadness in my face, it, it makes it you know, they they can connect with me better than they realize that, yes, I did go through a lot yeah. before I got to where I am now. Mm. So let's go on to that then. Let's talk about the years leading up to when you stopped. How did that look? Well, I guess my, when my dad got sick, well, then I got married, then I had my son, Jack. So that was you know, uh, even though I had a miscarriage and then I had a baby about a year and a half later. So that was great. Um, you know, and maybe then, you know, because I did go to bed so much earlier because you had a baby and you had to get up. Maybe that now looking back was where the wine opened up at three or four o'clock or five o'clock because I was going to go to bed when he went to bed so that I could get up early. Right now, looking back, that's probably part of it. And then, so I had my baby Jack and I was, you know, very happy and whatever. But I have to say now thinking about that too, he was young and we had a swimming pool and there were people in my backyard and there were people that were drinking. And I remember one of the men that 
there. One of my friend's husband went, drank way too much. And he was pushing the stroller around the swimming pool on the cement. And the, the carriage almost went into the pool. I remember getting up so quickly and I was so upset. And I don't know why I didn't see that being now looking back. I remember being upset about it and then making them leave because I, you know, pushed the baby carriage so close to the swimming pool. And I don't swim very well. So I'm very nervous around water. That was another time of alcohol being around me, what upset me terribly. But I carried on then. And then I had two more miscarriages. And then I got my Matthew. So that was like another blessing, you know, but life was, so I don't know if then maybe alcohol was kind of like my advice. Well, I had another miscarriage, so I can have wine again. Or, you know, it was because when I did get pregnant, I did stop with my Jack, you know, I did with my Matthew. I, I kind of had a glass of wine here and there and, you know, which looking back, I'm not proud of doing that at all. And I smoked cigarettes, which I was not. With Jack, I didn't. So I'm not very proud about that either, looking back. Um, you know, I think, wow, you know, it was selfish on my behalf to have done that, carrying a child, you know. And then, you know, I remember the minute the baby was born, it was like celebration and get the wine and get the champagne. And, you know, I was always somebody that liked bubbly, like, you know, Prosecco or, or champagne or whatever. So. I guess I just started earlier because I went to bed earlier. And Plus you know, life was more stressful, wasn't it? You know, like yeah. a lot of women that come to me, they're totally overwhelmed with life. And that's why they drink because they have full-time jobs and they run the home and they bring up the kids and, and it's just all too much and it's overwhelming. Um, plus now with lockdown, People were drinking a lot earlier anyway. You know, in the UK, it was boiling hot in March. Uh, and there were all these reels on Instagram going out of like people on holiday, you know. And when they went back to work, it got hold of them. And that at two o'clock in the afternoon, they were gagging for a glass of wine. So, you know, that all makes sense, doesn't it, about the drinking earlier. And then I was like the class mother, you know, I went to, you know, to do things at school when the kids were little, you know, like work in the library, do things like that. But then the mothers went out for lunch and a glass of wine would happen at lunch. That's what the mothers did. Uh, not all mothers, but the mothers that kind of, you know, we had the mothers that did exercise and they had the mothers that had lunch. And I was one of the mothers that had lunch, I guess. Mummy wine know? culture. So after that then, so what, what led you then like to start changing? Did you change gradually or did you get to a point? What was the pinnacle moment? The, the, the moment was when my Matthew got sick at 13. He was 13 years old. Um, so I was about 50 at the time. And uh, so I carried on for quite some time drinking. And, um, uh, when he got sick from one day to the next, he was a football player. He was full active sports. We were out four nights a week, you know, uh, bringing him to football matches and practices. And from one day to the next, he started having grand mal seizures at the beginning. We assumed it was caused by football, 
And the hospital after the first or second or third concussion, I don't even remember, said, oh, no, no, he's okay. He can play football again. Um, And then he went on a ski trip and there was a really bad, bad, bad seizure. He had to end up in an ambulance into um, another in, in the United States. And then once we got home, we realized that there was an issue and he was going, they just knew that he was epileptic. So alcohol would never be part of his life. Um, I remember going to the hospital and I don't know how it works in the UK, but here in Canada, um, the children after the age of 14, you don't, they don't, they could say my mom and dad are not allowed to come in and hear what I'm saying to the doctor. So they're on their own to decide what their best therapy or medicine is, which doesn't make sense that a child of 14 years old can can decide what is uh, healthy for them. But my son, thank God, would let me come in the room and and we we could talk about it openly. And I remember the doctor saying, and I'd still horrified to this day, saying, um, well, he could have one or two drinks with his medicine, but pot would be better. Smoking marijuana would be better. And I, I, to me, the first thing I remember thinking, no, p- p- drugs, no, 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 no. And then I remember thinking to myself, the wine or, or the booze, it was like, how is a teenager going to have only one or two? Like I could rationalize that for him. And I remember being very angry and saying, no, 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 that there's no booze with medicine, you know, and we left and, and surely enough, you know, the first year was a bit hard just to stabilize his medicine. So we had seizures in between. So the glass of wine was to, I thought, calm my nerves, help me sleep, get to sleep. And then finally, once we kind of got a little bit better and he was feeling better and we had maybe two months of no seizures or three months of no seizures. Um, I remember thinking, you know, okay, you know, Matthew, you've got to go out, have fun with your friends and get back into like a normal way of life because it wasn't normal what we were living. He couldn't ride a bike. He wasn't doing sports. Everything was, he was depressed. I was depressed because how could you not be when your child is sick? And so we ended up, um, he said after the third time, no, mom, I, I don't fit in. I, my friends drink, they smoke pot. I don't fit in. And I said, no, nobody needs alcohol or drugs to have fun. And as I said it, I had the biggest glass of red wine in my hand. And honestly, it's like a lightning bolt hit me. And I thought, you are the biggest hypocrite on this planet. And at that moment, for some reason, I said, I am going to stop drinking for three months. And show you that because they saw me drink every day and kids see, right? So they saw that I was drinking all the time and he knew I liked my wine and my martini and my whatever. So I said, I'm going to give it up for you. I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove to you and I'm going to support you. And I did. And um, he said after three months, see, now you can be like everybody else again. So I said, okay, I'll do another three months. And the first year, I have to say, the more I kept going, but I used him as my excuse. Mm. Every time somebody said, why aren't you drinking? Or come here, come here, come here. We can have a drink with me in the corner. We won't tell anybody. And I'd say, how could I look at my son? But I think I loved him more than I loved myself. 
That's because I could do it for him. Yeah. I could do it for him. I, I would never have done it. And I did say to him a year in after at the first year, thank him. I'm sorry you got sick, but you getting sick made me well. So talking about that, um, loved him more than you loved yourself. How's that now? I still love him more than I love myself. Oh. I, think. I love, I still think I love my children more than, than anything on this planet. That's, that's my why. That's my, my happy place. When they're sad, I'm sad. When they're happy, I'm happy. But I will tell you this. They are now 24, uh, 26 and 28. And the last 10 years of their lives, they are so proud of me, not only because I stopped drinking, but because my word means something. Yeah. Whatever I say now, I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, like I did a a post today of mine about my son, you know, and how proud he is of me because we used to enable each other. But I was the main enabler because that's the only way we knew how to kind of go out and have fun and that. And uh, now we don't. We go out and and we do different things. So I remember he stayed with me. I live out in the sticks now. And we went for a beautiful walk at Rutland Water. And he said, you know what, Dad? I'd have my little dog, Rose. And he said, I'm actually going to go for a run, um, but I'll be back in half an hour. And I thought, how lovely is that to to be doing all these beautiful things together, remember the conversations and really connect how it should be, you know, rather than just be slurring. I remember once we were both so drunk and he had to get a train home. And I got home, don't even remember texting him to see if he was all right. I just relied on the fact he got home okay. Do you know what I mean? And it's yeah. those kind of things that you feel so guilty and shameful, but you can amend them. And this is what I always say. Try not to hold on to the past. Try yeah. to learn from the past and correct it now by being an example that you want to be, you know? Yeah. And it can change. You did your three months. I did. I commit to three months and it, and it worked, you know, and I'm someone that's, if I say to myself, I'm going to do something, I will do it, but I need to get to that place, you know, to be able to do it. But talk to me then about, um, sober is the new call, right? It's everywhere, isn't it? And when did that come into fruition? And when, when did you start thinking about that? Well, I think the first year into, um, not drinking for Matthew, even though he was getting better, he could not, the, let's call a spade a spade. We had uh, many incidents where we ended back up in an ambulance with him because he had drank with his medication. Okay. So even though I was sober and I wasn't drinking, he did have a few occasions where he tried to have the one or two that turned it to five, six, seven, or eight or I don't know how many, right? And with the medication, it like increased whatever he drank tenfold. So that was a rough time. And then I guess for some reason, even though he has a medical condition of epilepsy, right? That addict word is not there. None of that is there, alcoholic, any of that. It's a medical condition like I believe alcoholism is. but Epilepsy is like having a heart problem or whatever problem, as far as I'm concerned. But he was embarrassed. He was shy. He felt different than everybody else. 
he couldn't, he didn't want to talk about being epileptic. He didn't want to talk about his medicine. And so at that point, my sister made the logo and we did a Facebook page. I didn't know what I was doing. I was not computer savvy at 50 years old. And believe it or not, all the first messages that came in were from the UK, from young women and men asking, why did I stop? What was the story? They love the slogan, sober is the new cool. Also, I think it made it um, less shameful. Yeah, You know, to say you're cool, you know, it was yeah. just that kind of vibe. And I guess the fact that I was not their mother, they could accept what I was saying to them. Because when your mother says something to you, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't listen, right? When it's somebody else that can somehow tell you the same thing and you you tend to listen a little bit better. And it just, it was amazing. It was like it blew up. And in those days, the only thing I could find on sobriety was um, something from Australia called um, Hello Sunday Morning. Oh, yeah. So, so the first year of my sobriety, every Sunday, I would do this Hello Sunday Morning, and I loved it. I absolutely loved this, and I met the most wonderful people. And I guess that inspired Sober is the New Cool and inspired the Facebook page and the fact that nobody was talking about it was, it just started. And yeah. I was like a mother with a kitchen table. This was not supposed to, don't ask me why I registered, trademarked the name. Don't ask me why. I, it just was supposed to be for Matthew, to yeah. give him a platform not to be embarrassed or shy or have to explain because Every time liquor came into the situation, it was like he felt he'd have to say, I'm going to have a seizure. I'm going to end up in a hospital, like tell his whole story. And he didn't want to tell his story. Yeah. And here and people, I have to tell you, when I started this. I cannot tell you how many people said to me. And it hurt me terribly. You are wasting your time, your money, your effort. You cannot say cool and sober in the same sentence <laughs> well you can and you do and we all do so who's laughing now dave so did you give them one of them for christmas one of your tops <laughs> <laughs> no but <laughs> it's amazing isn't it the, the the shaming that um the sober community gets but this is why when we all pull together and rally around you know, we're the stronger ones here and, and the movement yeah. is growing. I mean, what's it like in Canada? I mean, you know, I'm good friends with Brad McLeod, Ryan Phillips, you know, yeah. uh, some amazing people in the community. What's it like in Canada for the AF community? I think it's getting better. I think we're way behind. Um, you know, I just got back from New York City. We have very few alcohol, non-alcoholic um, things we can find here in Canada. It's very like when I was hearing all the things you guys have in the UK and in the United States here, it's very, very slow and limited, you know, which is unfair also to people. But I find that here, a lot of people are doing sober, uh, dry January, uh, sober, October, dry July. People are doing the sober curious 
They, yeah. uh, for some reason, that seems to be much more acceptable lately than it was. And people, I find, are talking more about wellness. I think the Canadian government did come out with a lot of statistics about cancer and different things with our drinking and the excess of it. So that's been quite um, encouraging. Um, I did have a minister this week talk about uh, uh, the month of October, International Recovery Month. And she highlighted and did a declaration on sober is the new cool, which I think will do something very grand for Canada in general, just to be able to talk about it in a national assembly, that this is an issue. It's a problem. We're dealing with it. We have to talk about it. We have to change yeah. it. And it's me working with you and you working with me and the, the people around the world that surround each other to change this is incredible because not one person is going to make it alone it's together we lift each other up and empower and inspire each other that's what i i love the most about my life now is something that was at a kitchen table a mother you know like the mother syndrome where you raise your kids you make the dinner that kind of stuff now talks to people all over the world yeah and that can meet people and 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 love her life more than I had was living half a life. And now I'm living 150% of my life yeah. at one time. Yeah. You know? and, and it shows as well. Um, so when you're coming over to the UK then? This is on my bucket list because I have to hug every single one of you because every time I meet somebody, it's like one is better than the next and better than the next. And it's such a beautiful community you have. I mean, I can't, you know, I maybe because I'm Canadian, I feel I'm part of your royal, royal, uh, your royalness. <laughs> <laughs> My royalness or the UK? <laughs> well, all of you, but you in general, because you're the king, aren't you? You're well, the yeah, king we're the king and queen then, eh? Um, yeah. Thank you for that. But Kim, honestly, it's been so lovely to have you on, and I'm so grateful you shared your story um, intimately as well. Uh, I hope you're okay. And yeah. um, I'm, re I'm really, like, happy we've done this because we've known each other quite a long time, albeit over the internet and that, but that's how friendships shape up, isn't it, you know? Yeah. Like when I did my 15-hour live on Falcon Change UK, I spoke to people all over the world, you know, and that's how big the community is of these cheerleaders that are all doing their bit to grow this movement, to make – being sober so absolutely acceptable in society now and you're a big part of that so thank you so much for joining me today on my podcast you know i can't thank you enough i love your book i tell people about your book because i think it's when we share like you made me share things today that wow i don't know if i you know i ever thought i would be able to share and it's important because i know a lot of people look at you or I or people that have had a few many years in sobriety and think I'll never get there. But we had to do a lot of work to get here. Yeah, we've all been there, haven't we? And this is why I think it's important to have these conversations to bring us back to those moments that were really difficult for us to remind us of where we are today. You know, it's always good to check in with ourselves, I think. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. so you like the book. Guess what's coming very, very soon? 
the audio book. Oh, that's even better. Yeah, and uh, that nearly killed me recording that. Uh, I really struggled with that. But anyway, it's all loaded and ready to go. So by the time this uh, podcast is aired, it might even be out. So, hey, there's another one you listen to my droning voice on. But that's wonderful because to me, I think therapy is the best when you're walking part of yeah, it. Yeah. So to be able to listen to a book and walk at the same time is spectacular. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. But the, the other thing that everyone seems to be getting diagnosed with ADHD now who have had an addiction to alcohol, right? I think it's yeah. a real um, side effect of it, right? And I can't read a book. So when I had to read my whole book, and record it that's why i struggled so much because i struggled to read a couple of three lines without me wondering what i've read and have to keep going back so there's so many people now that don't read they listen so that's why i did it um and as you say in the car in the gym going for the dog walk having them in your headphones and that is is a really good way of um doing it so i'm looking forward to that coming out anyway so that's the next on the list for me. <laughs> but Kim, thank you so much, my darling. And whenever you come to the UK, I need to be the first one that you let know. Oh, I am. Don't you worry. You're going to make. I'm going to make sure I see you. That's for sure. <laughs> thank you, Kim. And um, I know it's in the morning where you are. So have a great rest of the day, and we'll speak soon. Lots of love. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.